0: You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at ContentAllies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever to save you. Money remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate, no hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders.
1: Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Got another awesome episode for you today. My guest is Faraz Rashid. He's the CEO and founder of Hook. Faraz, Welcome. Would love if you would kind of, you know, give a little more detailed intro about you and your work.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot, Ledge. Thanks for having me on. And hello from one of the rare sunny days in London. So, yeah, I'm Faraz. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Hook. My background is I I spent many years buying software when I ran IT operations at a bank and then moved into running customer success at scale at a B2B SaaS company called AppDynamics, up to $550 million dollars. Um rebuilt it using data and um, decided to leave there to productize what I'd learned. And what I do now is run a company called Hook, where we help customers make sense of their data to be able to predict which customers will stay or go and how they improve the likelihood of getting more revenue from those customers. And so
1: customer success, for anybody that is still confused about it, would be that function that picks up after... A sale has, has taken place. You know, the, uh, us, us sales folks are really happy to say we closed something. There's been a signature and, uh, now the great people of operations and customer success get to deal with this and we can go on to the next new customer. So that's how I experience it. Is, is that about right?
2: I would be more specific than that. So yeah, they're exactly, if I have to explain it to a friend outside of SAS, that's what I say. If I have to explain it to someone inside of SaaS, I think the the most generic um, thing that applies to every SaaS company is that what customer success does is get a customer from purchase order to getting value out of the product. And they own that gap.
1: And then does that role continue through the lifetime of the customer? Or do you typically see, you know, then that there's a um... I guess more of a like an account management type of function there? Or how does that all play together, you know, in the full lifetime of customer?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's probably actually better to talk about that by stage of SaaS company. And by the way, there's been a huge shift. When I got into SaaS software, you wouldn't have a customer success team until you were like Series C, maybe even Series D. And we only really put together a proper Uh, customer success strategy at AppDynamics post-acquisition. So after we'd got acquired by Cisco for $3.7 billion, what I find is that today, most companies will hire their first customer success person at seed stage. We actually did ours even before we had a a paying customer. That person usually is responsible for like everything related to a customer after sale. And we actually have our customer success people come in before sale as well. So they have like a deep understanding of what we do um, from a sales perspective. And then as you get older, those those start to split out. So companies tend to have customer success teams, support teams, and then even within customer success, you tend to break those out and you tend to have people that focus on um, onboarding as a function. we are seen that a lot these days. Customer success during the lifetime of the product. And again, as the SaaS company matures, you then find that they will introduce scaled customer success where they they use data to be able to go and find out which customers to focus on And uh, on the enterprise side, you have CSMs. Um, In general, CS is consistent throughout the life side of of account. It just starts to break down as like SaaS companies get bigger and start to focus on more specific problems.
1: Okay, so data-driven customer success became important to you as a problem to address. Love to get into that a little bit more. Like what what was the discovery process there and and what did you learn?
2: Yeah, I, I actually have a pretty unique perspective on this problem. So I, I started my career in looking after the IT applications at Credit Suisse. When I left there, I was running a team of 150 people that looked after a huge bunch of applications for the bank. And I'd been through a lot of the process of, of buying and getting software used. And, um, and I used data to figure out who was using what, was it making a difference, were we getting an ROI from it. I then moved on to the SAT side and was surprised that we had a pretty reactive approach. And the way that we were doing customer success was mostly spending time with our largest customers and those who complained the loudest. Yet when I went out into the field, we had this like huge number of customers that that were the mid-sized customers and, you know, they bought the product, but they hadn't got value out of it, and they weren't speaking to us very often and they weren't complaining. But it was clear that. There was going to be an issue at which they were not happy buying more or they they weren't happy renewing. And so I I went through this process of saying, well, if as a buyer of software, I can use data to figure out how people use it. And if people use it, they're going to, uh, I'm going to renew, then it makes logical that as a seller of software, I can just take exactly the same approach at like massive scale. Um, So it was hard at the time because we didn't have a lot of data and we sat down with a spreadsheet one day and said, um, we're going to get a list of all of our customers. We're going to get a re- list of um, our license utilization. And we're just going to look over the last six months at what happened. And what we found was that there was a direct correlation between renewal and uh, adoption. So if someone renewed, they'd use 57% of their purchased product. If they hadn't, they were at 29%. And bang in the middle at 50 uh, or above, they were likely to renew if they got there. And w- that started our customer uh, success journey to be focused on data. We gave that to the customer success team and it just changed everything that we did and in terms of focusing now on the quiet accounts that once weren't speaking to us and the ones that were active and were happy and were above that 50% mark, we started to route those into, um, into other teams like sales, like services, like support to go and help with. When I left AppDynamics, I'd realized that not only um had we done something pretty special there because we'd uplifted our net retention by 10%, but also the scale of the problem in the industry and the lack of products in the market to help people. And so I started hook. And so is the major factor usage, you know, a sort of engagement with
1: the platform that would make somebody uh more likely to retain? I mean, I guess that makes sense to me because it's if you know somebody's using a thing, it's by nature, more embedded into their operation and therefore uh, they're likely to get value out of it. What are the other major pillars that you would look at?
2: Yeah, it's it's maybe worth looking at it in reverse as a starting point, which is if you're selling a tech product in order to drive an ROI for a company, you're not selling a tech product. You're selling the solution to a business problem and your tech product is is the facilitator in order to help do that. Um, And if your tech product works to solve that ROI, if people aren't using it, they're not going to get value out of it. And so as a starting point, there is the starting point for anybody should be, look at the way that people use your product and how that correlates with uh, how they spend money with you and how they drive value. And what we do as a company and what Hook does is, is use a lot of different blends of data, including usage patterns, including looking at seniority of users, including looking at feature uh, enablement. So it's not directly usage as in frequency of usage that, that, it, that is the solution because there are platforms which are back-end systems where frequency of usage might not be, but feature utilization within a certain period of time is. In my career at uh, AppDynamics, when we built out a machine learning platform to solve this problem I, eventually, and, and it took us um, a couple of million dollars to do this, What we found was that um, any type of engagement is actually a really strong correlator to to renewal. So if people were still attending marketing events, if people were still speaking to salespeople uh, after renewal, if they were after using the product, if they were engaging with our support team, any of those were were leading indicators of, of renewal and upsell. And actually sentiment, which is the historic way we did things like MPS and customer satisfaction, None of those had any correlation with it at all. It was very random. And in fact, some of the happiest, highest spending customers weren't the most satisfied because actually they had a really deep understanding of our product, its problems, the competitors. And so they were happy and they were getting value, but they weren't the 10 out of 10s.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I, everybody gets those emails all the time for MPS, and I just stopped doing it. I'm just like, I don't know, man. I, this doesn't This doesn't speak to me even as a user that, you know, we'll... How likely will you will or will you be to recommend to your friend? Like I don't know, sure, maybe I just. But you know, you're right. Like just the joy of showing up and using a new feature, or you know, some there's all of like these different sort of qualitative things that you guys must pay attention to. That, um, but ultimately, I'm not going to have a lot to say if I'm a, a a user that wants to keep using the tool and even my you know i may not log in all the time but i need it to be there when it's there you know i need it when i need it <laughs> and and it's important and it's built in so it must be really interesting to build the correlation models around that i guess you benefited early on from building the idea around tons and tons of users you know at app dynamics then
2: yeah i'd say uh it's funny you say that about nps because i th- i think there's an even deeper problem which is and you're right, people don't reply to MPS surveys. I mean, we, we had a customer recently that sent one out and they had an under 5% reply rate. And so the question you've got to ask is, what do you do with a 95%? Like, do you ignore that and say they're fine? The other problem you've got is that if you're sending MPS out to users, as we all know as sellers of software in B2B, the user isn't the buyer. And so, I mean, in some cases, if they take out their credit card, great. But if, they're, if, if it's a enterprise level purchase, actually it's being bought on value. So even if users love the product, there's got to be a business case to buy it, which means there's got to be a business case to renew or churn it. And often the cost of change is a way, 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 way stronger business case than keeping your staff happy, frankly, because there's a clear ROI on the on the former. So I think that's that for sure kind of starts to dumb down MPS and customer satisfaction surveys. Yeah, the data we find is is super interesting. We see drastically different patterns for different types of companies. So when you look at things like education tech platforms, we see a high correlation with people who, the seniority of users that use their platform. So the more senior users you have, the more it cascades down. And we suspect that's because people tend to say, hey, I saw this yesterday. Did you see it? When you have very technical backgrounds, particularly in the security space, what we find is that technical integrations has a very high correlation with with renewal and, and upsell, and 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 actually, you know, with a couple of our customers, usage in terms of active users is like way down at the bottom, but enabling integrations into certain things like AWS and and GitHub and so on is is way at the top, and so it just gives CSMS like real confidence into into where they should be looking in their in their customer health.
1: And so, is the focus typically on the metrics that are good and in range, or would the CSM focus on, you know, here are some deficient areas which are predictive of of churn? Like is it it's sort of a half empty, half full type of thing? Like how do you conceptualize that?
2: Um I mean look, when I ran customer success teams my belief was that they should only be looking at the, at the accounts that aren't in range. The easiest thing to do, especially if you work in customer success, because you're a people person, most likely you've got empathy with the customer because you've been brought in to solve customer problems. The easiest thing to do is to deal with the, with the happy customers, the ones that are engaged, have got product feedback. And the hardest thing to do is to get hold of those customers that the champion bought the product, they left and they and they hate you. And, and that's where I think people need to be spending their time. You know, it's similar to the the argument over hunters versus farmers in sales, where the high value comes from going to hunt out the people that you need to convince have a problem and, and you want to bring them in versus the, the kind of farmed inbound leads.
1: Yeah. What is that outreach like when you, you know, I certainly relate from a, a sales standpoint of like, you're basically talking about the lead that went cold. You know, everything seemed fine and, you know, now you can't get a hold of them. What's that look like from a customer support or customer success standpoint to get to the users that, you know, look, they're locked in for three more months, but we haven't heard from them and they're not using it. It's a clear red flag, revenue at risk. How do those folks tackle that problem of, you know, like, hey, we got to get to somebody because we know
2: they're going to probably churn you know it's hard and it's hard also because i actually think there's a lack of education in this space for cs teams i've led cs teams of of 25 people plus you know looking after a book of business of 150 million dollars and we never got training on you know outreach sequencing messages we never got training on phone calls and um and these types of things and it and i've gone through the journey of being a founder and having to sell And all of a sudden, I've learned all of this thing around how to write emails that people write and how to discover pain and how to solve that pain and and sell to that pain. And one of the things I advise a lot of customer success teams and leaders these days is is to get CS teams on sales training, because frankly, it's the same thing. All you're doing is discovering and selling into that value. The only difference is that you're not picking a check up at the end of it, or the the check that you're picking up is a lot longer down the line, i.e. at renewal time. Um, So yeah, I think it it, it can be hard. I think people are ill-equipped to do it. I think most teams actually don't even have visibility into who are the people that are active in accounts that I can speak to so that at least they can push me into their seniors and so on. And then when I think they do know that, they're they're ill-equipped with the tools and and so on to do it. We recently introduced sequencing into our product, So we we, uh, integrate into other products like Outreach. And it's interesting because now when we start to speak to CS teams, a lot of them end up using outreach because of the fact that we integrate into them and it's kind of highlighted that that gap of of the behaviors
1: yeah you get a lot of those when you're a SaaS customer you get a lot of the early attention make sure that you know you add three contacts you know the the wizards and the emails and did you know about this you know about that but once you're a real paying customer you know it, it typically falls off you know a lot and i think that there is that there's a gap there i also I also wonder I see
2: so sorry, it's funny you say that as well because I think that that point at where someone becomes a customer is where it's even more important to use technology to scale it because the 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 enterprise sales motion and the cost of acquisition of that customer you can't afford to repeat it in year two and year three like you've gotta you've gotta have a way to do it, and so you know I see exactly what you do, which is at the PLG point you've got all of these emails encouraging you to get in you sign up a deal you hit save uh you have one onboarding meeting and then you never speak to someone again and actually that's the that's a period where if you can get it right you can build out a scaled cs motion that is operationally efficient that means you don't need to go back and sell to that customer and then you've got you know the the upside of the the GRR and the NRR metrics as well
1: yeah i wonder about if you see different organizations, think about like, you know, that it's CS's job to actually administer and sell upgrades and upsells, or is there a, a tag back into the sales org? Cause well, a lot of times, like I've had the experience that my customers will ignore CS or, you know, not get back to somebody or even like billing problems or whatever. And the only person that can get through is me because they know me and I help you know facilitate that deal in the first place and I can actually text and say hey what's going on with your invoices or you know hey guys um you know somebody's trying to reach you and you're not getting back to them so like what's the integration there because the transferring that relationship is is so hard
2: yeah i i think there's there's usually three models one is customer success takes care of everything including the upsell and the renewal i actually think that's a very effective model and I think customer success teams can be scared of becoming revenue teams, and, and that's, a, that's a bad fear. I've had that fear before, and I don't think they should be scared, and I'll talk about that in, in a minute. I think the second model is that customer success looks after the value and sales looks after the renewal and, and upsell. And the challenge with that usually is this whole problem with cost of acquisition. And also, frankly, you're, you're distracting salespeople from doing what they're good at, which is, which is, which is net new sales. And then the third that you get, and I'm seeing this more and more is that you have a customer success team that takes care of everything up to the commercials, and then an account management team takes over the commercials so they you have the kind of you know the farmers and the account management, the hunters in new business and the and the people that hold the ball in the middle between with with customer success um, I think that there is a general fear of customer success people again i've experienced this myself of being afraid of becoming a revenue team or being seen as a sales team. And I think that that has, has, a, has a potential effect of like perpetuating the fact that what CS teams do isn't related to revenue. And, and that's bad because what CS teams do is everything related to revenue and bringing in revenue. And I think it's important that, that CS teams take ownership and accountability for that because that's how they get placed in strategic positions in the in the company there's a fundamental shift happening right now in software, which is sales used to be the most important number. Today, net retention is the most important number, which will figure out whether or not you you are going to get a valuation of 100 to 200x your revenue or 10x your revenue. And you can see that um, in the public markets with companies like Snowflake versus your average company. And I think customer success is ideally positioned to go and um, charge through this, this motion and become the champion of the net retention metric that that companies have got to take ownership of and, and i think that this is this is something that's really important for us as customer success leaders to champion and and to own
1: yeah i think that question of passing off the the responsibility for commercials is is an important one and where i see companies maybe not being able to enable cs to do those types of things is you, you just simply have created a a quagmire of commercials and pricing models and you know all the stuff that it's just virtually impossible for anybody to use unless you're embedded in that pricing stuff all the time. Now, that is less the fault of CS not being able to handle that than it is the company making this wildly complicated awful thing to buy and the licensing structures and the contracts and you know all that. You could certainly enable you know the work to do a better job on on those things which would probably drive better retention anyway because dealing and you know sort of doing business with you wouldn't be horrible and, and I you know I'm a big fan of companies that look at their contracting and selling and you know sort of you know the process around doing business with them that both enables their own people to do a better job and enables the customer experience to be better on the contracting side.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, we've all bought software where you want to be able to do stuff without picking up the phone and you want to make it simple. It, there's an interesting thing I've learned personally. So we we spent all of last year building our product. We built our go-to market uh, or started selling at the end of last year. And there's an interesting thing that we started to learn, for example, about pricing that you've got to get it psychologically right. To give you an example, we charge per customer unit today, um, where I, uh, per number of one of our customers, customers. When we first started selling, we introduced unlimited pricing. And we thought that that would be the way to release friction from the process and say, it's as easy as possible. You can have as much as you want. And strangely, it, people hated it. They really confused people. It confused buyers. It confused CFOs um, because they couldn't psychologically attribute it to what is the unit of value that we care about and that they care about um and so we shifted now we've never been a big fan of usage based models. I don't think they're a good idea in, in the space that we're in because they inhibit adoption uh, and for us, we want to make sure companies can use our products across the 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 whole uh, the whole company as soon as we introduce customer based pricing i e if you have a hundred customers, you pay a certain amount if you have five hundred you pay another. It clicks straight away. People went, "I get it. You get value. I get value out of it at the same time." On top of that, I can see how it relates to your consumption of data, and my CFO can plug it into a line on his spreadsheet that um, that justifies how we pay for it. So yeah, I agree with you that um, that that hefty contracts are are difficult as buyers and as a seller. I've realized the the importance of like psychologically getting things like pricing and contracting right even if you think you're getting a better deal on, on one side, it, it, it just makes a really big difference for people to be able to understand it in the right way.
1: Yeah, I mean, isn't that such a unified story with what you're talking about for customer success? right? Like they need to really understand how is this thing being consumed? And how does the customer perceive the world? Like it isn't about you. And you could try to give them all kinds of stuff, they go, but it's better, it's better, it's better. And they go, you know, I don't have time to think about this. Like, I just like, I need you to fit into my budget line item and my spreadsheet. And I need an integer that I can divide this by because cost accounting is a real thing. Uh, that's a huge lesson that, and you could, you could apply that to a service business, to anything. It's like, it doesn't matter if you think it's better. It matters that you help them count and understand the value unit somehow and the the highest way to churn is just to go like i think this was valuable but i don't know how to measure it so i can't prove it's valuable and whoever controls the budget is going to cut it off
2: yeah i totally agree i agree with you on that like people are, as i mentioned before people are buying a solution to a business problem that has a value and you're providing a cost and there's got to be an inherent relationship between that and as i as I've mentioned, like, We found that that even like seeds its way through the, through the, through the pricing, which is great for us because for me, it was always really important that like our success as a company in terms of revenue and, and, and so on should be caused by our customer success. And it, and it's been great to find a a unit of measure where, where that's the case. If they keep customers and have more customers, we make more money and they're happier. Yeah. Understood.
1: So okay you went through the go to market you went through the raise money you're a practitioner you left a company to make a new company you know it just maybe can you step through some lessons learned or about that experience cuz i think like there's a lot of parallels there and particularly the you know leave a company to start a company cuz i discovered a problem how do i fund that you know like i mean the stuff you must have gone through there from kitchen table mode to now scaling you know a large staff like what what was that like?
2: yeah, it was interesting it was um it was during lockdown so i i would left At dynamics, knew what I was gonna do um i'd spent i i booked a ticket for around the world flight uh for six months as as you know i i I know a load of people had travel cancelled that got cancelled, and so as you say, I was on on my kitchen table and really just got started with let's get building and my starting point was I spent six months understanding. What is the pain that people are facing? And actually, I was surprised at that because I was surprised that the consistent pain that came up with everyone was the one thing that I'd I'd gone out and and fixed and and was obsessed about, which is this this problem um, around data and actionability and being able to do something with it. So I went through that and and started to really sound out uh, SaaS companies, large and small, and that was everything from my network to people that I'd gone and contacted on. LinkedIn cold to um, I'd had recruiters that I'd recruited uh, CS people through and I would get them to put me in touch with other CS leaders. And and really that helped me build a proposition of like, what are we going to build and how do we differentiate and how are we going to get this thing to market? Uh, and then you go and do a raise. I started as a solo founder before a product and we, and we had our first fund provide our pre-seed cash. And you're still at the kitchen table, but you're now like, right, I have some money. And we know what we need to do and and now like we need to get started in doing this and and i think um, that was a unique journey you know i've never built something from scratch before i'm sure there's a bunch of first-time founders that that can associate with it but yeah we we hired our first engineer she came in uh, and started to explore the salesforce api we brought in a head of engineering we built out um, the engineering team uh, a couple of people in operations we brought in a customer success person the, the things that we got right were we were just desperate to get something and anything into the hands of somebody in the customer, feeling a pain as quick and dirty as we could. Uh, and so the first version of the product that we got out, and bear in mind, we're a data product. And so we ingest we like loads of data. The first version of the product we got out didn't even have a database. So what we actually did was all of our, all of our processes generated a JSON file, which our front end uh, read, uh, and it was horribly slow. Um, but what it meant was that people could look at it and tell us what was right and what was wrong. And then we started to iterate. And we did that using design partners, and then eventually started to commercialize those relationships when we felt that the time was right in terms of, in terms of people getting value. So, So I, I think we did that really well. We made some bad lessons as well. I, I'd like to say as a founder, I, I've made a lot, lot, lot more mistakes than I ever thought I would. Uh, and that's been great because we've learned it. I think one of the mistakes that we made was we were a data product and we, cr- we tried to create data as a silo because we felt that um, we needed expertise in data. And the problem is data is a really difficult thing to like make work as a silo. Uh, and, and we tried it twice. And then we went out to a consultancy and we tried it that way. And that still didn't work. And the day that the data thing clicked off was w- when we made it an engineering problem. And that just changed everything. As soon as we made it an engineering problem, our machine learning started to to work out of the box. Um, Our data ingestion was better. Our customer onboarding process was better. People just understood that this was a core part of what we did as a company. And today, that means that for our customers, we're able to predict like uh, 85% of their renewals accurately, um, like customer after customer after customer. So those are the couple of things that that I've learned. Um, I'd say there's one other thing that I'm really proud of that we got right, which was, I was really obsessive about culture of our company and that we had to hire a unique type of person. And that mindset had to be ambitious people who were intelligent, people who had high potential, but not necessarily loads of experience and had all of that, but really wanted to work in an environment with a team. I've always loved building teams. I've always loved working in teams. I like working with other people. I like sharing the ups and downs and I wanted to find people like that. So the first thing that I ever spent money on was on our branding. This was pre-fundraise. And actually, I didn't care about the branding for the fundraiser for customers because I knew that I could I could sell through whatever brand we had. What I was really interested in was if we were trying to hire this unique type of talent in a talent market that we knew was tough, we have to create a brand of an aspirational company that they want to work for. And so I spent a lot of time on on the brand and the look and feel. And uh, you know, as soon as we have our, our first few employees within three months we created a careers video uh we um had our values put up on the website the values were written down before we had the name and ultimately it meant that it became much 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 easier for us to go and hire um hire talent given all of the 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 headwinds against us you know pre-customer pre-product pre-team and and so on
1: i love that like so the branding exercise is primarily about the um talent acquisition and building the team that you want and that's That's interesting and unique. So thank you for for sharing that. I like that story. (laughs) Before we run out of time, I always ask everybody to, um, you know, sort of put on your futurist hat. And and I mean that in the short-ish term because things are moving fast and changing now. So, you know, I, I always like to know from a perspective of a B2B practitioner of any size or space, what are the major things that people should be having on their radar from your perspective?
2: Yeah, I think I'm going to go back to just like this one shift that's that I've talked about before, which is um don't underestimate the importance of net retention. And it is the number one thing you should be thinking about and setting your team up around. And I'm still surprised that at when I go and speak to companies around, uh, around the change and the shift in the way that investors perceive SaaS companies now, which is on the net retention number, not on the sales number, Uh, how few people are are kind of actively aware of that. So it will make it easy for you to fundraise. It will make it easier for you to uh, be acquired or go public. It will make it easier for for you to hire because you have more equity available with less dilution. So everything needs to be around net retention. And if you don't get ahead of it, then it's going to get ahead of you. The other thing that I think I'm seeing as a trend is that the moment that a company has got a, uh, a working product, there is a lot of venture capital money out there. And there is a lot of venture capital money at the earlier stages, particularly even though we're going through, through troubled markets. And what I see is that when companies start to build a, a product that solves a problem where there is a, a, a huge potential and they go and do a successful fundraise, 10 companies pop up overnight uh, to be able to go and compete with that. And and I see that like more now than ever.
1: The fast follow model. Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. And you and you go and see. You know, a company will go and do a Series A on on, on a, a fifty million Series A, and the next thing you know, someone started up much quicker and has done a hundred million dollar Series A, and therefore they've got double the capital to go after the same customer base, and they've got the speed to be able to do it because they they don't have the problems that you did in architecture. So I would say that it's more important that your product moat is. Is there because you know, your go to market moat can only buy you so much time for us. We focused on like the hardest problem to start with. So, all of our competitors were focusing on workflow, which was how do I set tasks and reminders? And we said we'll leave that because we know we can build that easily when we want to build it. What we're going to start with is the hardest problem is how do you ingest product data from like hundreds of SaaS companies and do that at scale and be able to build machine learning models out of that, but still onboard someone within four weeks, and um, therefore. We've got to do things like our data schemas have got to be able to support ingesting that data, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that was a really hard problem. Um, I know I lost a lot of sleep over it and our engineering team did, but what it gave us was a situation where it actually product wise, it's really difficult to build because there's a long lead time to be able to build that out of the box. And so whilst others may go and try and build that, we've already got the machine learned health scores for, um, for a bunch of different uh, industries, which means we can go into customer accounts and say, we know what your health score looks like already. You know, we know what a, what a company in this type of space should be. And therefore it's very quickly for us to get up and running. So I, I definitely think the, like you say, the fast follow model is becoming a bigger and bigger risk. And, and therefore the product moat becomes more important. And I think the most successful companies I see just say, start with the hardest problem and build on top of that and do the easy problems later.
1: Yeah, which speaks certainly to the proper financing at the beginning, because that long term of not only sort of first discover the problem. I love how you said you did you know six months of research. People often skip that part, and then you know then there's the idea of like build to that hardest problem. You're you're talking about being able to fund a really good team, you know, early stage there, and it really shifts that burden back to pre revenue, which is is great if you have, you know, the financial backing, but people often underestimate that, um, you know, for a complicated data problem. I've heard most folks in the ML and AI space will say, you know, like, honestly, like the first couple of years, it was totally like 80% of the problem was like rote ETL data ingestion. And it really sucked before we got to do something fun.
2: Yeah. I'd also say... We something we got right was in that time, like until you get product market fit and uh, and we're still on our way there. We we're starting to see like awesome early signals, but 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 um but you know, I don't want to call it before we're there. I think what we've done very well is we kept our team really tight and nimble because I think the, the problem is is that um frankly when you've got like a, a really clear problem to solve and you're still trying to figure out how to feed that to customers, the more opinions you have in the room, the worse you're going to be. What you don't need is like 10 different ways of solving this problem. What you want is a small group of really smart, really opinionated people who are comfortable sitting down and hammering out that problem day to day until you figure out how to do it. And then you want to invest in scale. I see plenty of companies that don't go down that route. And I think it's, it's it's just hard because you're starting to run before you walk and that leaves you with a whole load of product debt which ultimately even if you manage to get it to market leaves you with with bigger problems in churn down the line so keeping small and tight is is important um like you say the finance is important because even if you're small you need smart people to solve these problems and smart people especially in today's climate are not cheap and i think it's more important than ever that startups have to like start to match some of the the wages that that exist in the in later stages uh because of the competition that's out there. Great insights
1: for us. Thank you so much for coming to hang out. If anybody's resonating with this or you know wants to reach out to you, what are the best channels
2: for them to do that? Yeah, I'd say um add me on LinkedIn. There's not too many Firazes on LinkedIn in customer success. So search, <laughs> search for my name. Unique and... branding. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was the hardest bit, actually. So um, follow me on, on LinkedIn. Connect, in with, uh, connect with me. We're going to be at Sasta in Barcelona in June as well. So if you're around, come and visit our stand and come and chat with our team. And we're more than happy to help you out with your retention scale and customer success challenges. Thanks for coming out, Faraz. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening, and we
0: hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.